You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleinman. On today's episode, we welcome back Matthew Hongolds-Hetling to talk about his new book, If It Sounds Like a Quack, A Journey into the Fringes of American Medicine. The book talks about the intersection of the health freedom movement, alternative medicine, and libertarian ideology. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking about alternative medicine, libertarianism, and zombies with Matthew Hongel-Tetling. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is March 28th, and for this current events section, we are going to be talking about a study that just came out by Alan Abramowitz. It's called The Transformation of the American Electorate, Race, Education, and Partisanship from Reagan to Biden. And the study discusses changes in the American electorate in recent years, discusses various theses for why the electorate has changed. The short version would be that uh, he's asking whether these demographic changes in partisanship are related to economic distress or racist attitudes amongst the electorate. And he finds in favor of the latter, which is in confirmation of a lot of things that we've discussed on this podcast and the MHI has written over the past six or seven years about the rise of Trumpism in the U.S. So why don't we just get into some of the details. of Andrew, you were the one who brought this to my attention. What are, you, what are your takeaways from it? Yeah, what I found most striking in the entire article is, is the following. One of the main things going on is that so-called working class whites, the white working class, which is just the term that gets used, what the, the data really are, are people without college degrees. Okay, so whites without college degrees have been moving more and more and more towards the Republicans. So they used to be heavily identified with the Democratic Party. Over the space of two generations, it's gone very strongly in the opposite direction. So that these non-college educated whites are very, very strongly Republican and college educated whites have been moving more to the Democrats. So the question is, why is this? Well, and even before that question, there's also the fact that the amount of white non-college voters in the electorate has been reduced dramatically. Yeah. In 1980, the 70% of the electorate was white non-college voters, and now that's just 40%. Right. But at the same time, that block of voters has become Trumpy. Yeah, they've become very Trumpy. Your, your college-educated whites have been moving towards the Democrats. And pretty much everybody else, despite what you hear, the data that Abramowitz is reporting on, pretty much everybody else is pretty much where they were. They're either moving slightly in the Democrat direction or there is no change. So there's a smaller percentage of non-college whites, but they're amongst the non-college white voters. They've shifted to the right. You know, to say shifted to the right, I think, is kind of a misnomer because what's going on is the parties have become a lot more dissimilar than they were. Forty years ago, there were still conservative elements in the Democratic Party. Now it's like, what, Manchin? Right? <laughs> that's about all that's left. And, and there were moderate elements in the Republican Party. You don't have this. So what's happened, I think, is that the racial attitudes and the party uh, identifications have more and more lined up. So it's not that, that attitudes have so much changed or a particular group of people has become more racist or less racist than before. It's just the way I see it, he doesn't get really, you know, uh, specific about the causality. But taking a step back and looking at it, it seems to me that what's going on is just more clear sorting of the parties by the, the issue of race, you know, and to some extent culture. Right. Like people are making their they're making their voting decisions based on racial resentment. And the parties are lining up 
more consistently in that manner. Okay, so the, the Republicans are becoming the racist party and the Democrats are becoming at least nominally the anti-racist party. But the, the changes among whites are really striking. For instance, looking at the elections between 1980 and 1988, white college-educated voters prefer Republicans over Democrats by 12 percentage points. By 2016 to 2020, it was two and a half percentage points. They favored Democrats over Republicans. So that's a 15-point shift towards the Democrats. And among your your non-college-educated whites, there's an even more huge shift uh, in the opposite direction. From 80 to 88, the white non-college voters favored the Democrats by two percentage points. And by 2016 to 2020, they favored the Republicans by 24 percentage points. So that's a swing of 26 points. And that is really huge. Basically, all the numbers are double. Like if you had like a swing from a 20% differential to a 40% differential, a 20% differential was like 60 for one party, 40 for the other. A 40% differential, a 40 percentage point differential is like 70 for, for one party, 30 for another. So the, the numbers are kind of have to be uh, looked at in that sense. So, so it's absolutely a huge phenomenon about the transformation of the white voters, both college-educated, non-college-educated. But among the rest of the electorate, there's a slight movement uh, towards the, the Democrats, but, but just slight. So what's the evidence in this study against the economic distress thesis? You know, some people intuitively associate non-college with lower income and more economic insecurity. Right. And in fact, there is that association. The, the facts are that non-college educated whites have been moving towards the Republican Party. And people without a lot of college education tend to have low income. So there is a correlation, but correlation is not causation. And we know that because of a, a lot of things, the whole issue of spurious correlation and the value price studies and so forth. So what I found, in fact, was the most striking finding by Abramowitz in the whole study he says, okay, we've got this educational divide in partisanship, movement of non-college educated people towards the Republicans, uh, educated people towards the Democrats. But, quote, once we control for racial resentment, the educational divide in partisanship disappears completely. Once we control for racial resentment, the educational divide in partisanship disappears completely. So what that means is, yeah, it looks like educational differences are driving this, and that could be then class differences. However, to simplify slightly, if you take people with equal degrees of racial resentment, people who don't have any racial resentment, you know, to your most flat-out racists, you take people of equal degrees, then it's just not the case that the low-educated people or more Republican, more educated people, more Democrat. So what that's telling us is that the entire divide, non-college Republican, college Democrat, that whole divide that looks like an educational divide is really a divide regarding racial resentment. And the reason that you see that it looks like non-college people are turning to the Republicans, it's because they disproportionately have a lot of racial resentment. Or, I should say, at least that's how they answer questions on surveys. You know, I'm not at all convinced that the people who give the answers with less racial resentment really think that way, but they know how to answer questions. Uh, he also finds in the study that wealthy non-college whites are more Trumpy than uh, poor ones. So that would also so that would also be a argument against the economic distress theory. Yes, that's an that's an additional uh, argument. I mean, the other thing that I just found very striking and it's very clear and obvious. If you look at Abramowitz's Figure Four, it's looking at low, middle, and high levels of family income, and it's looking at whites in the year 2020. Did they favor the Democrats versus the Republicans, or vice versa? 
at all income levels, the non-college educated whites have more or less the same preferences for Democrats versus Republicans. At all income levels, low, medium, and high, your college educated whites have very similar levels of uh, preference for Democrats versus Republicans. So th this split between the, the non-college and the college does not have anything to do with income level. Yes, it does have something to do with income level when you, you mix it all together. But once you divide non-college into low, medium, and high income, college into low, medium, and high income, and look at how the preference for Democrats or Republicans plays out that way among people with the same education level at different income levels, uh, it's pretty clear that income is not driving at all preferences for Democrats versus Republicans. And so he finds, look, it is just uh, a matter of racial resentment, probably other racist attitudes as well that go along with it. The problem with his figure five is just like, it just blows you away, the, the huge difference between preference for Democrats versus Republicans among those with very low and very high degrees of racial resentment. I mean, just kind of eyeballing it, what is it, about people with very low, whites with very low racial resentment preferred Democrats against Republicans by 75. That's huge. A 75-point gap is something like 87 Democrat, 13 Republican. Whereas for very high racial resentment, it looks like about a minus 75. So it's just the opposite. You know, 13% Democrat, 87% Republican. The website electoralvote.com had a brief gloss about this study yesterday. And I thought that the conclusion was well said and also concise. Uh, it concludes by saying, over time, non-college whites with a low racial resentment score have become more democratic, but non-college whites with a high racial resentment score have become very Republican. This is the vein Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis have tapped into. They're appealing to racist resentment, pure and simple. Why is Trump still so popular with this base? Did he improve their economic situation during his time as president? Did he achieve a higher minimum wage, stronger unions, more social programs to help people undergoing economic distress? Not at all. Did he blame black people for crime and what ails America? In the immortal words of Sarah Palin, you betcha. That resonated. And then the article concludes saying this puts the Democrats in a bind. They're certainly not going to try to out-racist the Republicans, and raising the minimum wage may not matter much since these voters are not responsive to it. It is not clear what they should do. Maybe try to do better with Latinos and win over even more college graduates. It will call for a lot of creativity. That's <laughs> the sort of the bleak way that the piece concludes, and it leaves me also with kind of a bleak outlook because I don't know really what the options are for a mainstream party like the Democrats that are trying to <clears throat> pull together a broad coalition of people, but have this huge part of the American electorate that's just proto-fascist, uh, rapidly fascist, and is only interested in people that are more Trumpy than Trump. So there are very few options. Right. Although I, I want to try to take a look back in history to put these numbers in some sort of historical perspective. I think it's a mistake to look at these numbers and think of this in terms of changing attitudes. Okay, what I think is going on more is that people are sorting their party identification according to their pre-existing racial attitudes. Let me, let me give you a for instance, it's an important for instance, You've got these non-college-educated white voters, and now they're strongly Republican. And back in 1980, they weren't so strongly Republican. But back in 1980, and Abraham points this out, he doesn't make a thing of it, probably second nature to him, but back in 1980, these were Democrats voting for Ronald Reagan. These were the Reagan Democrats. These are the people we talked about with Stanley Greenberg and Macomb County, Michigan, and all of this. So the racist attitudes were there. Are the American people becoming more racist? The, the data don't show that. They, they show, in fact, racial attitudes improving uh, on the whole. So what is going on is not really... You know, a country is becoming more racist, more authoritarian in terms of the populace. What's happening is that 
the parties are more and more sorting themselves, both in terms of who votes for them, who identifies with them, you know, and the politicians as well. The parties are more and more sorting themselves along these racial lines or, you know, racist versus, you know, not so racist or anti-racist. So the problem for the Democrats is that there's really much less wiggle room than they used to have a generation, two generations, three generations ago, where there is some way for them to appeal to people with a lot of racial resentment. People know the score by now. They know if, if I want a, a pro-white candidate, I got to look only at the Republican Party. I'm not going to look at the Democrats. I'm not going to look at candidate quality, personal attributes of this guy running for this House seat. It's this party versus our party, which is the white people's party. That's the, the major change. That does put the Democratic Party in a bind. They've got a very low ceiling, but they've got a very high floor. And Bramowitz points that out as well. I mean, a phenomenal number of Democrat-identified people voted for Biden in 2020. It was something like 96%, which is like almost unheard of. Okay, so they've got a very high floor, very low ceiling. And if they do, it means the Republicans do as well. And so what we have is more and more sorting and polarization into two camps and not much in the middle and not much of any way to appeal to people on, on other bases other than this racial culture war stuff, what side you're on. But I'll tell you, I think we have to say Bramowitz's study gives the, the lie to this whole economic stress, economic distress argument. But it's not, of course, the only study that's done so. I, I've, I've done studies and I, I found the same thing, not with the 2020 election results, but you know, with 2016 election results. And we've had uh, David Norman Smith, who's done studies, found the same thing. And pretty much everybody's found this. But this myth that, you know, the authoritarian, racist, Trumpite mass sentiment in this country is driven by economic distress, it doesn't go away. And doesn't go away on the left, particularly among the Jacobin kind of people. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Up next, our conversation with Matt Hangel-Tetling about his new book, If It Sounds Like a Quack. We are recording this main segment on March 7th, and we are pleased to welcome back to the podcast Matt Hongold-Hetling. Regular listeners might recall that Matt was on the podcast, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago to talk about his book, A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. And he's back today to talk about his brand new book, which is just out. It's called If It Sounds Like a Quack. The book is a really funny, very entertaining journey into the world of uh, alternative medicine and the way that alternative medicine dovetails with libertarian ideology, the ideology of medical, the medical freedom movement. It's like a very interesting cultural picture of the way skepticism of, of modern science and post-truth is um, deeply embedded in like charlatanism and quackery and grifting and uh, all sorts of things like that. Welcome back, Matt. So your book starts off setting the context, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. So you started sometime into the pandemic, and you say early on that the opposition to public health policies that we saw and are still seeing, like wearing masks, that this opposition raised serious ethical questions that you hope to get to the bottom of. But you didn't. You say you didn't. Okay. Why not? Why didn't you get to the bottom of these serious ethical questions, and what is your book about instead of that? Uh, that that is a great question. Um, first, let me just say thank you so much for having me on uh, the podcast. It's great to talk to you guys again, and thank you for the kind words about the book. But yeah, so it was kind of funny because I I think even for someone who is very you know kind of like community minded and progressive minded like myself, we can agree that there's a point at which public health and the idea of like the community protecting the health of the individual or even a segment of the community 
can kind of cross a line and become this sort of like dystopian matrix situation where, where the, the, the solution is to you know, put us all in bubble wrap and, and you know, impinge on our, our life in a way that's distasteful. And I think we all draw that line in a very different place. And so I think the pandemic sparked a desire in me to find out kind of like where that line was, you know, that, that was really intriguing to me because here you had some people asserting that, something very, very simple, like wearing a mask in a public indoor space is somehow so onerous that they are ready to get up in arms about it, you know, uh, literally. And so I wanted to, you know, see where they were coming from, uh, see, see what the nuance of that debate was. But then when I started to reach out, you know, part, part of my strategy was I wanted to reach out to folks uh, who were in the the kind of alternative healing community who had come into some sort of a conflict with the government. You know, I, I thought that would probably be a pretty good starting place. And so I started to reach out to folks who had been, you know, maybe sanctioned by the FDA or, you know, come into some sort of a regulatory trouble. And when I started talking to them, they were so beyond what I expected. They, they were such extreme positions that were so dissociated from reality that, <laughs> uh, that it quickly became not a nuance, not an exploration of nuanced topics, but but just like a real understanding on my part that where that line ought to be drawn is perhaps a secondary concern to the idea that no matter where the line is drawn, you have a critical mass of people out there who are going to be very unhappy with, with that line. And those people are not coming from, in my opinion, a, a healthy place. So it's not like social responsibility versus individual freedom. It's social responsibility versus zombie apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, in a I mean, way, yeah. That's what the, the terms of the debate are, you're saying in reality, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the first one, it's the second one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really hard to decide, you know, how you ought to, you know, paint the room when you realize that there are people who are literally setting the house on fire. You're, you're inside uh, talking about different shades of eggshell blue, and outside, you know, someone's like throwing a flaming Molotov cocktail through the window. That's what this uh, debate is like to me. Uh, so I just decided to address the people with the Molotov cocktails. And who are these people? I mean, we, we, there's so many great stories in the book, and we obviously can't get into a lot of them or m much detail here. People just have to read the book. But in brief, like, who are the people that you are profiling and who are the people involved in these this alternative health movement? I, I go pretty in-depth into the lives of six or seven alternative healers, and I spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about who they were before they became who they are now. Uh, yeah, I, I really go into their, their histories. And one thing that really struck me was that there was a time when all six or seven of these folks uh, were more or less ordinary Americans. In other words, they, they weren't radicalized. They weren't complaining about masks. They, they weren't complaining about vaccinations. They were just out there living their lives, and each of them kind of independently struck on what they thought was a great, you know, revolutionary health idea. So, so in a way, they're, they're, they're kind of like the mad scientist trope. They each thought that they had something that was just going to be so great for humanity uh, that they were really going to build an empire, like a business empire, or create a lasting legacy based on this scientific discovery that they thought they had made. For one guy, he thought that scientific discovery was the creation of handheld lasers uh, that could harness a universal life energy uh, that could cure cancer. Another guy, it was curing cancer and other diseases by deacidifying the body with injections of baking soda and a strict uh, diet protocol. As offbeat as those are, there is kind of like a sympathetic vein uh, running through them, where, where these folks thought that they had come up with something that was very, very good, and then the political playing field and the system and the dynamics of our country and, and the way politics and healthcare work and intersect in our country, those things warped these people into just utterly radicalized folks who are very dissociated from uh, what we think of as uh, a scientific understanding of the world. What are the the main causes? So like, what what are these forces that are pushing these individuals in your book to 
get to where they are, where they're becoming a, th- a threat to other people's lives, where they're battling the FDA and basically being like sort of celebrity grifters. And what are these forces that you re- that you re- you referred to? There's a kind of two main factors at work, and one is that the medical system and the healthcare system and like the bureaucracy and the culture of medical science is very off-putting. It holds the common man at a real arm's length. So, so that basically created an opportunity that there's a little bit of a, a, a freezing out of these people from mainstream society. But then the maybe more insidious and more um, active factor in this is that in the early 2000s, libertarians who had among their many platform positions a stance on you know medical freedom and health freedom that, that are much more common to hear about today than they were 20 years ago. Those folks made an active and concerted outreach to people in the alternative medicine community. So you had these would-be healers, uh, you know, the, the guy who wanted to sell his lasers that uh, he said could cure cancer. And he's being told by the government that he can't make health claims about his handheld lasers. Or if he can make them, he's got to make them within a very narrow and, and regimented set of uh, rules and protocols that he's got to observe. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have somebody from the health freedom community reaching out and saying, hey, look, if you bought into the idea of medical freedom, you wouldn't have to deal with those regulations. You know, you, you, you could just sell your product, that you, your miracle product that you know works uh, to your customers and you know, let the free market sort it out. And to the alternative healer in the moment, that sounds pretty good. But what they don't really fully comprehend, I don't think, or at least it's not front of mind for that sales pitch, is that the medical freedom agenda is much broader and much more hurtful to the American public than simply allowing a low-level healer to to sell some device that, that the medical establishment considers to be bogus. What are the goals of the libertarians who are pushing this medical freedom movement? They want to basically get rid of all regulation of the medical industry, get rid of Medicaid and Medicare. and Yeah, they're, they're not shy about saying it. <laughs> it's not a secret. They want to get rid of all Medicare and Medicaid. They want to get rid of any medical licensing. You know, so, so in other words, you know, right now we have a, a system that says if you want to be a, a medical doctor and practice this thing we call medicine, you got to go to the schools and get the degree. And then uh, you got to get a license from a, a state that's made up of other doctors who have gotten the degree. In, in their system, you know, there wouldn't be any special stamp on those medical doctors. Uh, instead, you know, the guy who is curing through a snake venom would be on the same playing field. And at that point, it just all becomes marketing. But they also want to get rid of the FDA. They want to get rid of any research, uh, government-funded research into important medical scientific advances, including in the battle against cancer. It's just unimaginable to think of what healthcare would look like if you didn't have any regulation or government support and incentives uh, to, to kind of herd people into those channels where evidence-based medicine is being practiced. You know, it's no secret that a lot of economists are free market types. They tend to libertarianism, but with exceptions. This idea that, oh, establish free competition and the market will reward what's best and uh, weed out what's not good, that is just understood by economists not to be applicable to the kinds of things we're talking about. And for a very simple reason, the issue concerns accuracy of health information. And a market cannot do anything to guarantee or hardly even encourage accuracy of information. People can advertise. What are they going to advertise? My information is inaccurate? No, they're going to advertise (laughs) my information is accurate. So what competition will do is establish claims that you're getting accurate medical information from me. It will not do anything to establish whether you're actually getting accurate medical information. So even free market economists, there are certain things where they they carve out exceptions to their free market stuff. And this this is a standard one. So when these libertarians are hawking 
this stuff, it's not based on any theory, actually, because really, it's only a moment's reflection that's needed to confirm what you said. Just like, you know, just think about how this would work. It would be it would be absolutely terrible. Yeah. I mean, imagine if no product that you bought had gone through an approved laboratory facility in the in the creation of it you know imagine they're thinking about what it would do for the little guy think about what it would do for the big guy big pharma these massive corporations out there that have been mercilessly working the system to try to till everything to their advantage what if they didn't have to spend a billion dollars a year influencing politicians and and all of that you know what what if they could just go right to the the person and get them to sign whatever contract they wanted them to sign to get whatever medication they wanted them to get and charge whatever they wanted to charge. Uh, yeah, I think we'd all be serfs on, on some big pharma farm, but before uh, too much time would pass. Yeah, really crazy. I mean, do you think that when you talk about these medical freedom movement people uh, intentionally reaching out to the alternative health movement, is there just like purely an ideological agenda here? Or are these sort of libertarian people, are they just trying to find a way to deregulate commerce so they can make a quick buck selling snake oil to people is it just like a thin veil over hucksterism and miracle cure is sold by crooks or is it like is there any legitimate sort of ideological or other purpose beyond just making a quick buck well you know, what it really did was it married kind of two camps that had previously not really been that integrated into one another. You know, it married the folks who had a financial interest in marketing these alternative health products, which includes, you know, all the supplement industry, all the um, light therapy folks. Uh, yeah, there, there's just endless, endless cures out there and diet fads and all of that. All of those people and all of the marketing that surrounds their products and their their services you know all that infrastructure has been married to a political agenda of the libertarians that has been subsumed or or adopted as much as possible by the republican party you know, so, so what you you had was you had a bunch of people selling a bunch of stuff and then you had uh some libertarians saying like hey you shouldn't be defending the science of your cures. You should be talking about the right of Americans to buy your stuff. They should be able to choose whatever products and medical care they want. Uh, that, that should be a fundamental American right. And so once that became the message, the mainstream Republican Party found itself very well aligned with this idea of medical freedom and health freedom. And over the last 20 years, as those relationships have become cozier, you've seen a lot of products uh, of questionable value being hawked by these Republican politicians in particular. Ben Carson is a promoter of, the, of this Manatech company. All of these kind of prominent Republicans who would use their email lists to sell alternative health products to their base. There's this, just this kind of like unvirtuous cycle where the profit motive was turned into a grassroots movement that supported a political agenda that is probably, you know, almost immaterial to the profit motive. And then they, they just kept on feeding each other. So now you have some of these alternative health giants donating as much as $100 million to these sort of health freedom lobbying organizations. It's re really, really frightening. Totally, totally. If this, I mean, it's a fascinating conjuncture of different cultural forces. And I, I can think of so many examples from my, I used to listen to AM radio decades ago. It was like a constant thing that the right wing AM radio guys would hawk male virility supplements and other kind of doomsday prepper pills. Then like even last year when Dr. Oz was trying to win a Senate seat, right? It's like this long, several decades now of the development of this symbiosis between this snake oil salesman selling people a bunch of, bunch of stupid pills and like and it, and it goes it goes back even further than that. I remember I was in a class by a libertarian who was actually a Nazi in, in college, and we had to subscribe while we were in his course to this publication still exists called Human Events, real rabid right wing publication, and they would regularly carry ads for Laetrile, 
which is an mm -hmm. apricot derivative that supposedly cures cancer, causes remission and so forth. And it, it doesn't, you know, there's no, there's no evidence, but that stuff has go been going on for a half century or maybe even longer. Then it became viral, as you're saying, approximately 20 years ago, and that accelerated why, why do you think that is? Is that have, having to do with the collapse of legacy media, the rise of the internet? Yeah, I think that did have a lot to do with it. I think what you're talking about, and I think I remember reading that there was a, a link between that project that you were uh, talking about and the, um, the John Birch Society, like, like way back when. But I still think if you think of alternative health in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, you're probably thinking about kind of like hippie movement, you know, like, like the, the countercultural, natural healing, yoga. This is all like a very deep left sort of culture. And while there were some things on the right and including, yeah, like I, I would hear those same supplements that you're talking about preying on the insecurities. And, you know, you look at Alex Jones and it's all buckets of crap for sale. Uh, but what happened, I, I think it, it, the, the collapse of legacy media did have a lot to do with it. You know, the, if you were somebody who was really into some wacky, bad faith alternative cure like lasers in the 90s, you were kind of like the guy with the sandwich board standing out in time square like repent for, for the end is nigh. you didn't have a lot of options to get the message out and so you know, you'd have to like take the proactive step of like maybe subscribing to a specialty niche magazine if you were really into alternative health maybe you're suspicious of vaccines you can't stand up in public and say that you're against vaccines because 97 to 98 percent of your neighbors are pro-vaccine right and so there, there's just kind of like no critical mass for these things to form around but then when the gatekeepers of information in the legacy media found themselves overrun by decentralized information dissemination, coursing through social media and all of that, suddenly all these guys with the sandwich boards could link up. They were able to you know, reinforce and build upon each other's views, and that really started to turn them into a political force that the libertarian uh, health freedom lobbyists and activists were able to tap into and mobilize and grow very, very successfully. One thing I found really fascinating and, and really alarming is what you just shared with our listeners, that like a generation ago, the opinion polls would say 97, 98% of the population thought vaccinations were a good thing. Widespread anti-vax sentiment is really a new thing, only within the last generation. Until recently, almost everybody agreed that parents should get their kids vaccinated. You point that out. And one of the main stories in your book is about this couple, religious fundamentalist uh, Christian couple. They practiced faith healing and they practiced it on their 11-year-old daughter. And that caused her death because they refused to get her regular medical treatment. But you say that even they had all of their kids vaccinated. They had four kids and they, they all had vac vaccinations, including the one, the one who died. So what happened between 20 years ago and now to bring us to this point where vaccination is a, is a live, contentious, life-threatening <laughs> political issue. The anti-vax thing is a really funny example because the anti-vax movement around the year 2000 was nowhere. You know, as you and I have both said already, you know, vast, vast majority of Americans get vaccinated. And now, you know, there, there are pockets where coverage is, is like, you know, it's not like fewer than half of people are getting vaccinated or getting their kids vaccinated, but there are pockets of like, you know, maybe like 86%, 87%, 88%, 90s. And those areas that's a big difference because a transmissible disease can jump from one to the other. Like we had eradicated measles in the year 2002 or so, and now measles are back. But because people aren't getting their kids their routine vaccinations for measles. And what's a little bit different about that is there's really no, there's no alternative product per se to vaccinations, right? It's not like there's one single other thing that people are saying to do instead of vaccinations. They're, they're attacking vaccines as an evil. You know, they're, they're saying like, if you get a vaccine, that is detracting value from your life. And, and it's hard to really like appreciate what the motive is for that. But what it comes down to is that all of the alternative healers whose voices have been greatly amplified 
through this process of, of herding up under a medical freedom banner, all of them are out there saying that what they can sell will cure you and affect your health in such a way that you don't need a vaccine. Yeah, it's really funny because the different alternative health folks, none of their ideas align with one another, right? The, the guy who thinks that baking soda in the veins is a cure is saying working on a completely different understanding of science and health than the guy who thinks that lasers are the cure or the, uh, the, the guy who tells you to drink bleach to, to you know, kill all the little microscopic parasites in your body or folks who faith heal. Uh, right? Like they're all very, very different theories that are not compatible one with the other. But where they all agree is that they can cure stuff that medical science can't. You know, so in an effort to blacken the eye of medical science to prove their own theory, they're all agreeing that medical science is bad and that vaccinations are a good example of bad medicine uh, in their view. It's, it's funny because it's almost the only common thing that they can agree on. It's like 2016, except for instead of all the Republican candidates uh, in the Republican primaries being quiet and letting Donald Trump rise to the top, if they all attack Trump, but because the medical establishment is like the, the front runner and they, they are all willing to speak in a united uh, voice against it, even though they all have their own individual profit motive to, to look after. So one of the themes that we're talking about, something that is the theme, is the theme of the book, is the long struggle between science-based medicine, evidence-based medicine, and quackery. Um, can you take us through some of this history? There's one thing that I only mentioned briefly in the book, but I actually did a lot of research on it, and I had to really reduce it but because the book was getting too long. But one thing that I found really interesting in my historical research was that in the 1830s or so, America went through a moment very, very like what it's going through now. So 200 years ago, medical doctors were not very good at what they did. You know, science was almost like a new thing, or at least medical science. And so they were out there with the bloodletting and prescribing toxic metals for, for their treatments, removing legs without any sort of pain medication or anything. And sometimes those leg removals were not necessary. So like, there were a lot of faults to have with university trained doctors still, but you know, because they recognize that there's a core of science here that is of value, you know, that we're all kind of working off the same body of research and fumbling our way towards the same answers. They were still the scientific modality that was endorsed by the state in various ways, including the, the licensing of medical doctors. But at the same time, there was this huge landscape of alternative healers, everything uh, from folks from marginalized communities, you know, midwives and, and traditional uh, Native American healers or indigenous healers and black people who had traditional cures uh, that they had brought over from their various homelands. All of these people who could not practice medicine that was approved by the state were out there doing their own thing. and. There was a healer in particular named Samuel Thompson, who was an herbalist. Yeah, he had some nutty ideas about health, as almost everybody did back then, it seemed. But he successfully united all of the alternative healers behind a call for medical freedom. And he went out in what's sometimes credited as the first organized lobbying effort of the country. He united all of these healers and went out and lobbied on a state-by-state -state basis and successfully got every state in our, our young America to overturn all of their medical licensing laws. So the university-trained doctors had no particular advantage over the herbalists and the soothsayers and, and the hypnotists and the metallurgists and the clairvoyants and, and all of these folks. Their credentials were considered to be just as viable as those of a university-trained doctor. And he did this in part by just whipping up a public frenzy against doctors. There were some high-profile incidents in which university-trained doctors had been caught stealing cadavers out of the ground. They would dig up somebody, take them back uh, to their anatomy students and show their students how the human body worked through these like stolen corpses. And that idea that you could die 
or that your loved one could die and then be stolen in the night by some doctors really fueled Samuel Thompson's ascendance. There were all these, yeah, they're known as the anatomy riots, where people would uh, try to kill the the doctors uh, who who had offended uh, in this way. So you had this moment in history when the goals of today's medical freedom movement were actually met. And as a result, there was a, a 20 or 30 year period in American history where all of these alternative healing modalities like flourished and they set up their own schools, you know, botanical schools of healing and provided the foundation for all sorts of other alternative healing practices, some of which have persisted to this day. And that set back the medical establishment in the United States by about 30 years. Like we, we for a long time, were far less advanced than our European counterparts. And the only thing that got us back on track was the Civil War, when the federal government had some officials in the army who were on board with the idea of university-trained doctors. And that sort of created an infrastructure that that re-elevated the idea of medical science. And so I think that's really, really interesting because I think we can become really deadened to the idea that the nuts are going to prevail. You know, we, we, we can get very complacent because it seems so unthinkable to think that we could ever, you know, do away with medical licensing in this day and age. Um, but in fact, it's happened before and it's happened because of political dynamics that are very, very similar to what we're seeing today. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. When you were just talking now, Matt, you mentioned that science-based, evidence-based medicine really didn't regain dominance over the, the quackery until the Civil War. and was kind of like, here we got a war emergency, so let's get serious, people. But I got, I got the sense from the way you wrote it up in, in the book that you were not only saying 
the dominance of the quacks prior to the Civil War slowed the pace of the dominance of science and evidence in medicine. But basically, the, the way I read it is you were saying, you know, this is like kind of an historical fluke. It could easily have gone the other way. And it Given the conditions being similar right now, it, it can go the other way again. It's kind of like we can't assume that the truth will out. My sense is he was saying that's a mistake to believe that a society will choose, people will choose based on the evidence of what works, what doesn't work, and that we need to be very vigilant here and, and, and fighting all the time. Is that what you're saying, or, or do, you, do you think that there is some sort of historical law that the arc of history bends towards medical evidence or something like that? I am saying that it's never been a foregone conclusion and, and that it continues to not be. What happened in the 1830s was a triumph of you know, marketing, essentially. You had two sides that were fighting. One side was right, one side was wrong, and the side that was wrong went out with a better message and rallied the people behind them, scared the medical establishment in, into foxholes. And what we have today is another threat to the idea that medical science is somehow beyond beyond any possibility of failure. They're undermining the medical establishment in many different ways. But what it ultimately comes down to is marketing and communication. There is a real recognition, a growing recognition, I think, among not just medical scientists, but the scientific establishment in general, that they can't rest on their laurels just because they're right, that they really need to work to make their knowledge accessible to the public, and they really need to communicate their conclusions. In science, you know, there's a um, kind of more famous example is, is climate change, right? Global warming, where scientists were very reluctant to sound an alarm because part and parcel of science is to be very timid and cautious in announcing what you've discovered. You know, you, you want to you point out the caveats and you want to, this weather event could be attributed to blah, blah, blah. And as a result, that left kind of like a, a vacuum in the debate that allowed folks who had no scientific training to step in and vocalize the other point of view and gain a much, much bigger platform for that other point of view than the view itself merited. And, and I think we're seeing the same thing today, we're seeing scientists who are struggling to reach out to Joe Average and communicate ideas about something very basic like vaccination. It should be so cut and dry, all the numbers point in one direction, and the penalty for getting it wrong is sometimes death, and yet people still make the wrong decision. It's really, really remarkable. Yeah, and it's seems increasingly difficult when people almost feel like an obligation to take a certain position on something because of how they identify politically. Once certain things become politicized right now, people feel like obligated to adopt certain positions, or at least a lot of people do, because they it's part of what their tribe uh, believes in. Yes, exactly. And I do cite a study in the book that points out exactly that, like uh, of the many psychological levers uh, that, that can be used to, to drive us. One is that, yeah, you will say whatever is necessary and you will believe whatever is necessary to remain a member of your tribe, right? Like if, if your friends and family are saying one thing and you disagreeing vocally will result in your ostracization, you're much better served for, from a unity of, of self-identity perspective to just go ahead and believe in that nutty thing that everybody else believes in. You know, if they say the, the sky is yellow, just go ahead and, and agree with that, no matter what you might think. This conversation in general mirrors the larger conversation that we've touched on at times in this podcast of the problem of living in this post-truth era where a lot of the people who are used to either working scientifically or producing knowledge, testing knowledge, have not really been prepared for the post-truth era, whether it's traditional media, whether it's scientific community, whether it's doctors, whether it's people that do statistics. Uh, they're not used to having to justify or explain the relevance of doing real science against people who are spreading falsehoods. 
it's a lot easier to spread lies and propaganda than it is to actually figure out how to fight against the post-truth phenomenon. In many ways, the post-truth, you know, people, they're not interested in like engaging in real debate and, and honest conversation. It's it's propaganda that you 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 avoid the real issues, you do whataboutism, you obfuscate, you do all those tricks. And the people who spent their careers learning how to do real science, they didn't get trained in how to like deal with that stuff. And nobody really knows what to do about it because it's it's not just like a question of like, okay, you got person A and person B and they believe different things. Let's put them in a room and they'll work it out. They'll debate it and they'll come to a common understanding. It's like there are people trying to do real science and then there's other people just trying to destroy the civilization, drive the bus off the cliff. No one really knows what to do about the problem, right? And we've talked about this in the podcast and uh, we talked about Holocaust denialism where neo-Stalinists or Trumpism or anti-vaxxers or, you know, it's it's like everywhere in our culture. And like anywhere there's some people trying to like advance truth, there's another group of people trying to advance bullshit. And all these people that are interested in doing truth, they don't even know what, what kind of ammo you should leave the house with to fight against the, these people. You know, it's just like, what do you even do? Because we seem to have agreed that it is still important to believe in truth and to defend your points truthfully. But other than that, like, do you stoop to like the level of like propaganda and like dumbing things down to try to win people over? Do you assume that they're not interested in being won over and that you just have to like fight them, uh, you know, outscreen them or cancel them or edge them out of the political space so that they're just silenced and less effective? Do you focus on like going after social media and, and regulating the internet so you can like put a stop to the stuff? I mean, you know, in your book, you talk about how the FDA is just like really outgunned, like they don't have enough people and techniques and resources to actually take out all the people selling mir- miracle cures. They just don't have the administrative capability or or the, even the right mindset to like be aggressive enough to like put a kibosh on all the miracle cures. So it's it seems to be hard to like really come to any clear plans because it's like a post-truth disease that's spreading very quickly. We're talking about the way that information goes out and the way that information is taken in and the way that people think about information. But I suppose it all circles back. You know, when you frame it alongside all these other parallel debates, it all goes back to just trust in government or trust in institutions, right? Like we shouldn't have to be making decisions uh, about science. Like you were saying, we shouldn't have to be like evaluating the science of a healthcare treatment or a vaccination. We should have confidence in person or a body of people who have all the training that we believe in our hearts are, are acting in our best interests. And that's what America seems to be losing. How do you reestablish that trust? If you reestablish the trust, all the other problems uh, evaporate, right? Right. The pro- the problem is this. There was overconfidence that the gatekeepers had trust. What they had was gatekeeping techniques. Uh, <laughs> and it worked as well as they were able to control the gates. Once they no longer were, then we saw the extent of their actual support, and it's not great enough. I I don't think the matter is a trust in institutions or government entities or things like professional associations, Food and Drug Administration, anything like that. I think this is what was tried and it failed. This is why I think that some understanding of statistics and understanding of scientific procedure is really important. Because without that, what do you have? You got there's a realm of fact and there's a realm of opinion. That's just opinion. That's just a theory. This is fact. This is proven. There's proven and then there's opinion. Okay. That's the way a lot, a lot of people think. And so what, what do we see during the, the pandemic? Ah, well, the CDC says you should wash your hands. Uh, the CDC says you don't need to wear a mask. Now the CDC says you do need to wear a mask. They're always changing. You know why? Because it's the deep state or wherever yeah. the hell it's going to be. People who do not understand will tell themselves these ridiculous stories. They might tell themselves the ridiculous stories anyway, but a lack of understanding of how evidence works, of the procedures that work, I believe that that contributes to the problem. And I think that in, instead mm-hmm. of taking people at their current understanding, which is a misunderstanding of how evidence gets generated, 
refined, tested, and so forth, the, the, the wheat gets separated from the chaff. If people do not understand that and are looking for some finished body of this is proven, that's proven wrong, everything else is opinion. If, if that's the, the mindset that people have, we're, we're never going to go anywhere. So to, to my mind, I don't think it's a sufficient a sufficient solution, but one thing that is needed is to, to, to give people some understanding of statistics and evidence and what people need to trust is a certain set of protocols and procedures that generate reliable knowledge versus those that don't. So, Matt, you talk a lot about zombies in the book. You say that interest in zombies started off as a lighthearted fad, but that it's morphed into a very sinister code used by the right wing. What's this all about? What's the zombie thing all about? I was really, really floored. This is actually, uh, in the book I talk about, this is how I first realized that I wasn't going to be talking about the nuances of the extent to which government should impose on public health. When I started reaching out to these, these alternative healing people, I found that most of them believe that actual zombies, meaning, you know, flesh-eating evil undead entities are walking the earth. Yeah, they, they were just kind of like bring it up and they had different ideas about how and why zombies existed, but they all believed that zombies were real. So I started looking into that and focusing on that. That became kind of like an emerging theme of my, my research. And what I found was that after you keep going down the rabbit hole of these kind of like anti-science, anti-vaccine pathways you get pushed into ever more extreme versions of arguments. You know, you, you start off saying like, yeah, sure. Uh, big pharma has some influence on government. And then you say big pharma is controlling government. And then you say the elites are controlling government. And then you say the elites are blood drinking pedophiles. And now finally that the next step down on that ladder is that liberals are are zombies and they they don't mean just mindless sheep it's not that sort of an argument one healer that i spoke to believed that there are biological weapons that you can spray on a population and then induce a zombified reaction in people and that you could target this reaction specifically to liberals by uh increasing their stress levels by showing them images of donald trump that there was another theory of the case that zombies are demons who, who enter the bodies of the morally compromised, which once again means liberal Democrats, and take them over and, and have them go out hunting for flesh and brains to eat. There was another theory of the case that the vaccines themselves inject people with nanoparticles that can then be controlled remotely by a sinister, shadowy force uh, that would allow them to take over their bodies and turn them into zombies and kind of like drones to go and attack the people who are resisting that. And so, uh, how many just people like, are we talking about? Hundreds, thousands? Um, you mean how many zombies? No. <laughs> how many people believe this stuff or say well, they believe this stuff? I personally spoke to just a handful, but you know, I, I interviewed you know, uh, fewer than a dozen healers and a majority of them. But there's actually kind of a surprising amount of evidence out there. If you start looking at surveys of people and polls of people, there's a consistent small percentage, but you know, somewhere between like 6 and 14% of Americans who tell the pollsters that they believe in zombies. You know, you, you might just kind of like attribute this to like, oh, this is how many uh, Americans want to tweak the pollster. Uh, but it shows up in all sorts of different ways. Like the number of zombies like figuring in dreams have spiked, according to those who study dream imagery. Uh, there, there's an American Chapman University regular survey of fears and zombies show up r routinely on that survey. And then you have a bunch of talking heads who are out there actively telling audiences that zombies are real. All those theories that I mentioned, those have all been circulated widely in right-wing media channels and presented as fact. And you say, geez, you'd have to really be stupid to, to believe in that. But the, those who have studied paranormal beliefs say that just like we were talking about earlier in terms of tribism, you will believe in something if you believe that other people believe it. And there was so much 
talk and chatter about zombies, uh, that they only needed a couple of real life things to misinterpret to, to really make this take off. Uh, one of them was the CDC came up with a mock plan of how people should react to a zombie disaster, like a zombie apocalypse. And this was like a clever way of the CDC to kind of repackage natural disaster tips. Uh, they, they put that out there and now people are saying like, well, of course zombies are real. Look at this. The CDC even has this document on file to tell people how to respond when the zombies rise up. Uh, there was a, a an incident in Miami in, I think, 2012, where a guy attacked another guy on the street and the attacker was chewing at the face of the um, the victim. Uh, so they point to that as an example of a zombie that slipped into the news to, despite the efforts of the elites to suppress it. Uh, and so this is all A, stupid and funny, but B, scary and serious because all of these storylines and narratives encourage people in the gun rights movement, you know, the, these militia people and others who are, you know, maybe religious fundamentalists, that their ideological, their, their political antagonists are actual inhumans. You know, it, it's a way of dehumanizing and actively encouraging people to picture their political opponents as something that is inhuman and ought to be shot. You know, it's like a, an infectious, mindless threat. Uh, and so since these tropes have uh, taken off, there's been the emergence of a bunch of zombie-themed militia groups uh, where they actually go out there and they do survivalist training in a imagined fantasy world in which the people that they meet are not fellow survivors who, who need care, uh, but zombies that need to be shot. There, there were a few signs of zombies at the January 6th storming of the Capitol. We, we've seen a couple of mentally unwell people kill people uh, that they said were zombies. This is an actual concrete example of just how bad a lack of adherence to science-based, evidence-based beliefs can get. I mean, yeah, this is where it's heading. It's heading towards extermination. We got to take this threat very seriously. I know it sounds nutty and it is nutty, but there's a political agenda here that is heading towards extermination if they get half a chance. Well, it it is a great book. I think I hope think people will thoroughly enjoy it. It's uh, very clever and well written, and it's a real page turner, like I said. So, Matt Hungold's Hetling, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, really great to talk to you guys as always, and and uh, hope we can do it again uh, sometime soon. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 